How many of you have ever been a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout? Raise your hand. Boy Scout, Girl Scouts. Hey, good job. Me too as well. Uh, I was uh, just a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout and, um, <laughs> and, and uh, I was there um, all the way up to my 17th year. So when I turned 17, my family moved from Pennsylvania to Florida, and I moved around about halfway through that, that, that school year, and I never picked it back up again. And my parents tried. They really did. They were like, Mike, you know, there's a Boy Scout troop right down the road, like two minutes from the home. You, you know, go, and you'll meet people, and all the things. They tried so desperately, and I, being an obstinate 17-year-old, if you can imagine me being stubborn in any way, shape, or form... Um, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to be here. I don't want, and, and I totally turned uh, turn my uh, back to it. Uh, and then eventually I got to go back to Pennsylvania. My parents let me go back for my senior year. But at that point, in order to get your Eagle Scout, and that's what I was striving for, I was a life. I had, it's called, that's the, that was the level that I was at. I had a couple of merit badges left for, senior, uh, for, the, uh, for the Eagle Scout. Anyways, did, couldn't do it. My birthday was in December, December 23rd, if you would like to mark it down. I turned 40 this year. Um, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I, uh, the time had run out. You have to get that done by your 18th year. And so I got to see all my friends get their Eagle Scouts, and, and I did not. But that was my choice. So, you know, that was, that was on me. But I bring this up because Boy Scouts was a lot of fun. And we, uh, we went on different, different camping outings and things like that. In Pennsylvania, they had a camping outing called the Klondike. And it sounds as horrible as, as, as you would think it would be. Uh, it's in the dead of winter. They gave you a little badge that said, you camped at 32, 32 degree or below weather. And I was like, why is this a medal of honor that I didn't get hypothermia? Like, oh my goodness. I mean, we were actually literally pitching tents on ice. It was a sheet of ice and you just, you know. But yeah, that's what you'd send 13-year-olds to do. But anyway, so while we were out there having a great time, there was a, a camping trip that actually happened in the summer that I am bringing to you today for the purposes of teaching. Uh, and it was um, at Camp Mac in Pennsylvania, and they had this 50-foot rappel wall. How many of you have ever gone rappelling before? I, I'm not a heights person. I'm a weebles wobble and I will fall down. I just did that's not that's not for me. I just know that it, like we 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 did our house in Florida, did the roof, and we just had a ranch style home and it had three peaks that went down. And you can look at it, you can almost jump up and touch the roof. That's how it wasn't high. And I thought this would be great. I can do this with my dad and friends. We can take off the shingles. As soon as I put my foot on the roof, I thought, oh no, 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 no. I'm falling down and breaking something if this happens. So heights are not for me. But all of my friends wanted to do this repel wall. And so what do you do when you're a teenager and all your friends want to do something? You, you know, you do it. Now, if you're a teenager in here, that's not the lesson here. You don't jump off a bridge. <laughs> but we all know what happens. So here we go. We're on this repel wall. And you have to climb up a ladder. And it's a vertical ladder like this. And, and, and like a rusty gate behind you. Not up to code, I'm pretty sure. And so as you're going up this ladder, I'm like... I'm literally shaking. I went to the Empire State Building once, I saw a picture of a person hanging off a lightning rod, almost passed out, right? You know, it's just, this is not for me. And, and I told a funny story about Nancy Nestor. Anyone know who Nancy Nestor is, our former children's ministry? There's a ladder in the closet right over there that goes up to the roof. And her and I had to go up to hang a banner over the side of the wall. It's what we used to do here before I said, well, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> And it was fine until I had to come down. And it's this little hole. Luckily, it was big enough that I could fit through it and not have a Winnie the Pooh moment. But as I, as I lifted my leg over the side, 
you have to find the rung of the ladder, right? So you're doing one of these things, you know? She's down there peeing herself laughing because I'm like, dear Jesus, dear Lord, help me God. So I climb up this ladder for this rappel wall. I get up there and you're on the platform and some older teenager, this is all on the up and up, he, he puts me in the whatever the, the things are and, and he's like, okay, you're good. You're going to flip your leg over the side of the wall and there'll be a ledge there. That ledge was a two by four kind of nailed into the side of the wall. So it's about yay big. I'm wearing hiking boots, size 13. Like that's not, what do you mean? That's like the stand, this is how you have to stand. I got it, I'm good. And so I'm over there doing these things again, finally get over. And he says, okay, turn around, I'm gonna hold on and you're gonna lean back. I said, okay. And so as I lean back, I'm all, this is, this is, I can't believe I'm doing this, right? And so finally I'm like, okay, this is fine. Holding on to the rope and I start doing my little jumps. Jump, jump, just kind of, kind of going down and oh my God, this is nice and easy. There's a guy at the end of the, the foot of the 50 foot, he's holding the other end of the rope. I'm assuming he's there to catch me if I fall, poor him. And so he's kind of holding on onto it. Something happens. He either does something or I do something, but he causes the friction of the rope to suspend me. So now picture me in my harness, seated, and just kind of doing one of these things. <laughs> just flying back and forth, just like, a, and then this special. You know? <laughs> so I'm like, well, how do I get down? The guy down below, the person who's going to catch me, he says, what you need to do is you need to take your legs and flip them over your head and start climbing down backwards like this. I said, come again. I didn't quite hear you. <laughs> flip your legs. These don't go over my head. So anyway, so we flipped. I flipped over, totally scared. That is my perspective. This is dumb. I'm on heights. I'm going to fall. But as I started climbing down and, 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 and working down the rope, I realized how the perspective change, if you will, that uh, this wasn't so bad. And the ropes were doing what they need to do and what an experience to use later in a sermon illustration. I knew that. <laughs> I finally got down onto the ground. Today, why I tell this story, one, for laughs and to get everyone laughing, but two, we're going to, um, we're going to see why the apostles in the book of Acts, where we're at, we're in chapter five, why? Why do they keep on pressing on with this bold and courageous witness? Now, of course, we could also, we could sit here and not have a message and try to figure it out. Like, oh, it's because of Jesus, it's because of the things. But I just, you know, it was a challenge for me, like in my life, in such adversity, fear of death, would I have that same boldness, that same courage? Would I have that perspective that what I am witnessing, witnessing about, what I'm on mission for is that much more important than my own safety and my own life? That what's happening on this side of heaven is just momentary. It's just for us becoming more and more like Christ until that day that we're with him. Would I have that perspective? Would you all have that perspective? And the fact of the matter is, Probably not on your own. On your own, absolutely not. You would see the tall repel wall. You would see the fall. You would see all the reasons why this wouldn't work. But with the Holy Spirit, which this section in Acts, this first 
these first chapters really are hammering at home, is that on your own, no. But with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who lives and resides in you and can teach you of all the things and remind you and convict you, yeah, you can, actually. You'll do amazingly unimaginable things because of the Spirit indwelling in you. There's a perspective change that occurs when we truly, humbly bow to the Lord. We get a new set of eyes. We get a new view on the world. And as we continue in this world, it grows deeper and richer and stronger. But we see things a little bit differently. A couple weeks ago, it was Reformation Sunday. We want to talk about an example of someone who had a profound perspective change. Reformation Sunday is when Martin Luther grew kind of, um, what's the word? He was unhappy. He was uh, skeptical of what the Catholic Church was doing. He was a monk, and, and, and they, were, they had systems that were set up, and, and he didn't quite understand it or like it or, or think it, thought it was wrong. In fact, he, he meditated over Scripture, Romans particularly, chapter 1, verse 17, and had this what was called a tower experience, because I think he was in a tower and the whole thing, and had this experience, a Holy Spirit perspective change, when he read Romans 1, 17, where it talks about how salvation is through the gospel. The gospel has the power for salvation. That righteousness, our right standing, comes through faith alone, not by works, and to not be ashamed of the gospel. And that gave him a new lens, a new perspective on life. And he wanted to go and tell the Pope and tell other people, hey, we got to reform. There's some things that we may not be doing quite right. Now, I need you to know that this is not vilifying the Catholic Church because we've got to be careful. Anytime we talk about the Jewish faith or Catholics or anybody else, Baptist, uh, whatever it is, we don't want to. That was funny. Thank you, thank you. We don't want to vilify because mistakes happen all over the place, even with you and I. So Martin Luther is looking at this and thinking, okay, it's got this perspective change and nails that thesis up on the wall and says, this is what I think we need to do. So you can imagine that the authority of that church, the Pope and the bishops and everything, whom they were charged with giving out the instruction of scriptures. It wasn't in print at that moment, at least not massively. One of the best things that happened with the Reformation was the printing press came along right around the same time. And so all that stuff could get into the hands of the people. So you can imagine that the authorities were thinking, uh, how about no, Martin? How about you just quiet that down Take that down and recant what you had to say. And so there's this famous council, the Diet of Worms, where they bring him in and they say, recant, take it back. And Martin Luther, who never wanted a split, finally said this. And this quote has been said over and over, different ways. This is the best that I could find in, in the short time that I came to mind to use it. Martin Luther says this, my conscience is captive to the word of God that's the perspective change. Is, is your conscience captive to the word of God? Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. So here I stand and I can do no other. God help me. Today we see a here I stand, I can do no other moment. 
And that is really the driving point for our sermon this morning as we close this section in Acts. This is actually a section. It's a pericope, if you will. It is from chapter 2, verse 42, to the end of chapter 5. We see very similar parallel stories to kind of tie a nice neat bow on what's happening here. The apostles are now empowered with the Holy Spirit. And now because of that empowerment... We see a fellowship and a unity of believers and people coming into the faith by the thousands. And you see a boldness of witness in lieu of pending death. And at the end of chapter 5, a here I stand moment that you can tell us all these things, but we're going to continue on keeping on. And it's because of the perspective change that they have had. The Holy Spirit brings about a new lens, a new view on life. If you walk out of here and see the world for all the mountains and all the things why Jesus isn't real, then the Holy Spirit may not be necessarily in you. And you may need to kind of continue to search and seek that out. But you who have professed a faith in Christ, where the Holy Spirit dwells richly, you begin to see the world for what it is. You understand sinfulness. You understand that sinfulness has to be punished. But that doesn't make God evil because he also sends Christ, which brings about grace. Those wheels, those connections happen, not because you're so intelligent, but because the Holy Spirit has brought these things together. Same thing with the apostles, mere fishermen, tax collectors, the whole motley crew. They have such eloquent knowledge of the inner workings of Christ and what he's doing for redemption because of the Holy Spirit within them that gave them that perspective change. And so they look at the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and they say, listen, we're here to obey God, and we're not going to do what you're telling us to do. So let's jump in. Let's get in there. Open up Acts to chapter 5. The Pew Bibles, I believe, are page uh, 1085, page 1085. In your little uh, Acts journal, it should, if anyone has a page number, they can shout it out for the good of the order. But we are looking at chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. This is right after the weird story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you were here two weeks ago, I preached on that boldly because it does, it's not a story that is altogether fantastic uh, in terms of, yay, Jesus. Uh, it, it is it, the Ananias and Sapphira were counted among the fellowship of believers Everyone was giving up their property and their money and they were sending it to the church in full. And Ananias and Sapphira, they did the same thing, but they held some back. They lied. They were false witnesses. And they cast, and, and God cast them down dead in the middle of the worship service. Things escalated very, very quickly. And so you would think that as Luke is, puts, puts that story in there for us to remember the importance of the fervency of spirit, that, that God is not after lukewarm believers. He likes his coffee hot or he likes it over ice. He doesn't want it lukewarm. That's a famous line in a movie. God doesn't want lukewarm. He spits that out. That's in Revelation. You are lukewarm. I spit you out. Yeah. And that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't all in. They wanted the image of great spirituality and the image of great faith, but they hedged their bets, didn't they? They're like, well, just in case this thing doesn't take off. We'll keep a little nest egg back here and we'll just go about our business. And God says, absolutely not. That is not 
how this mission takes off. This is not the ministry. You cannot just be half in. You have to be all in. And so I would have assumed that Luke, who's writing this, would have had more to say about such a traumatic event. But he doesn't. He just kind of picks up and says, now, after they were all afraid, he says, verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church, upon all those who heard those things. And then in verse 12, now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they're all together in Simon's portico. Ah, everything's back to normal. And I think, as I did some research, because I didn't know, I think that possibly what Luke is trying to show us is that, that, that the, the wrath of God is not now on, this, on the church now, and if you get step out of line just one way, everyone's dying. He really wanted to focus in on the lukewarm thing and then really continue the, the pace, the urgency of, we're, we're, we're sending this message out. We don't have time for half in, half out. We're going to keep on keeping on. So they were all gathered together in Simon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And no more than ever believers, excuse me, and now more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And when I came across that that those two verses, that no one, no one dared to join them. Because if you join them and you step out of line, apparently you end up dead. So that's not a great evangelistic tool, is it? No. So no one, no one dares join them, but they held them in high esteem. And then verse 14 says, but more than ever, believers, circle believers, if you've got your Acts Bibles, circle that. Believers, that Greek word, is, it means faithful. Those who have the faith. And we know that those who are called faithful is by the Holy Spirit calling on them and them humbly submitting, repenting of their lives, being baptized and joining with the Holy Spirit with this fellowship. So we know that faithful is not just someone who's like, hey, sign me up. It's someone that is truly all in. The faithful more than ever, more than the thousands that we have seen since are being added. So no one dares join, and yet they're having a great revival here of, of people joining. How does that happen? It happens because of the perspective change, doesn't it? Because even though they realize that this is not something, this is not a country club that I sign up for. This isn't a Sam's Club membership, a Costco. There's not $1.50 slices of pizza, which are a glorious thing to behold. This is real. This is all in. And if the Lord grabs a hold of my heart by his Holy Spirit, I can do no other but to join, regardless of what's happening around me. Isn't that powerful? I think, and I'd say this at the first service, this is free. I think that's one of the things that kind of plagues the Western church, the American church, a church that is, that is sitting kind of fat and happy is that there is the, the, the real essence of this being a life or death thing is not necessarily in our concept, yet it still is a life and death thing to this day in other parts of the world. As we hear news stories of pastors and, and faithful people being murdered because of their faith. No one dare join them, but they could do no other. What a powerful two-verse punch here to explain the importance of being in this fellowship, of being 
with the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to what? Lay down your, your life. And that's what this is here. It's kind of a recapitulation of all those things. So verse 15, so they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them in cots and mats, that as Peter came by, lest his shadow, least his shadow, excuse me, uh, might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Again, following the footsteps of Jesus Christ. If you remember the bleeding woman who's going through the crowds, I just want to say, I just need to get a touch of his cloak and I'll be healed. The same type of surgence is happening. And now also look that even though they have not departed Jerusalem, and even though the Sanhedrin has said to them, stop teaching, stop doing what you're doing, the word has gotten out beyond the city gates. It is starting to now seep out into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. We're starting to see it expand in spite of and, and because of what the apostles are doing and what people are doing to try to stop it. If that isn't a witness to the Holy Spirit who testifies to the truth of Christ, I don't know what is. The message will go, amen. Where's that baby? Amen. Yes. Yes, exactly. Chelsea, she's giving me an amen? That's right. Awesome. So anyway, so, there, so that's where there, that's uh, just that little bridge here in terms of Ananias and, I, Ananias and Sapphira falling down dead and how they continue on with this great fervency. It's a great perspective change. It's a feet up in the air. Okay, I get it now. And so now here we are into 5, 17 through 32. Now things start getting real again. And now they are faced with the very real decision, do we stop or do we continue? Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled, they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Why are the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which is made up of mostly Sadducees and some Pharisees, the Sadducees were a big muckety-muck group. They held a lot of the top positions, and they were a little bit different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection uh, of life, or they're necessarily being an afterlife. They followed the letter to the law of what was written down, whereas the Pharisees allowed for some oral tradition to also be counted as canon, and that's what got them in trouble with Jesus a little bit, because they were allowing their traditions to kind of supersede what was written. So kind of like a back and forth between the two. But the Sadducees, they didn't, they didn't ascribe to the resurrection of life. They were sad, you see. Get it? <laughs> anyway, so... So then you get this group of people who all they're saying is the resurrection of life happened and we saw it and you saw it because you killed him and you saw the open tomb. You cannot deny it. And so the more and more that they continue to preach that and the more and more people are joining and thinking absolutely this is correct and there being signs and wonders, it is impeding on their authority, it is impeding on their way of life, and they want that to stop. They're not even being open to the fact that the truth is in front of them, and it's been offered to them to actually accept. So filled with jealousy, as they're continuing to teach, after they told them not to, they throw them in prison. Verse 19, but during the night, 
An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach boldly. I added boldly because that's a bold thing to do. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they were called together to counsel all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have these people brought back. The apostles bring them back. But when the officers came, they did not find in the prison, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Underline, circle that. Well, that means in the Greek, greatly perplexed, means they have no way out. They have no cognitive reason, no logic, no answer, none of their education, none of their experience. Nothing is coming to the forefront to explain why these people were locked in jail and now are outside it while the doors remain locked. They have no way of explaining how this is happening. Once again, you would think, hey, maybe what they are saying is true because all this supernatural stuff is happening. They didn't have TV like we did where they were like, you know, close encounters of the third kind. But here's the thing. listen, this is happening in real time. Supernatural stuff. Maybe it's true. Do they, do they say it's true? No, they're perplexed, wondering what is to come. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching them. Then the captain with the officers went out and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. See, the movement is gaining such traction that the people are going to turn on the authority. Isn't that something? Imagine a life here, us, where the government may say to us, hey, you can't gather. You can't worship publicly. And you sure can't talk about Jesus. Can you imagine if that was a law here? We came close a little bit with COVID. Now, our church and other churches made responsible decisions about whether, of, of how we are gathering during the pandemic when we weren't sure how medicines were going to work or whatever. But eventually we came back. But there were portions of our country where local governments said, absolutely not, you cannot meet as a church and pass those laws out, which really puts the church in a situation, doesn't it? Do we obey that as good civil people, as Scripture also tells us to do, to obey the laws of the land? Or is this now getting interfering with the authority in whom we obey? And so some of them engaged in civil disobedience and they paid for it. If that happened here in Ohio, I remember a former pastor, Jerry Kasberg, if someone came in here and said to Jerry, you all can't meet, I think he would laugh in their face. Jamie, can you, can you attest to that? Yes, amen, yes, I think he would say, ah, uh, thank you, but goodbye. But this is happening here in real time with them. You are not allowed to speak. So they bring them in, set him before the council, verse 28, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. They can't even say the name Jesus. They don't want to give Jesus any credit whatsoever. To them, Jesus is a cursed man. 
In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if a man hangs on, on a tree, he is cursed. To them, he's cursed. They put him on a tree. He is a cursed man. And then anyone that's following him is also cursed. Good riddance. They won't even mention his name. Yet here you are, filled, filling Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Circle that. What an ironic phrase here. So not only will they not say Jesus' name, because they think, they think he's cursed and they think he's bad news bears and all the things, but then they say to them, you want to put his blood upon us. How ironic is this statement? Because I would wish that the Peter and the apostles would say to them, yeah, we do, but not in the way that you are thinking. Not to guilt or shame you. We want the blood of Christ on you because if the blood of Christ is on you, you are forgiven of your sins. Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. You should want the blood upon you. You should want that mark in your name. Because if you do that, you are saved and you are free. So then Peter and the apostles answered, listen, we have to obey God. We must obey God. This is how I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. They referenced Deuteronomy. God exalted him at his right hand. So Jesus is obviously not cursed. He's been exalted as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, you are Israel, and forgiveness of sins. What a cool twist of theology here. It's not Jesus who is cursed. It's the ones who hung him on that tree. And his blood is not guilt for his death. No, his blood is freedom for your souls. To give repentance to Israel first. So Sadducees, you don't have to be sad. And Pharisees, you don't have to be fair or far. You can come. And we are witness to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We are witnesses to these things. And the Holy Spirit who has been given to them, who indwells in the believers who obey him. So they can do no other but to sing the glories and the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the shadow of impending death. Now the story goes on, and I don't have time to go through it all, they, 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 can, they get enraged and, and, and they, they, they get ready to kill them. And this, this Pharisee rises up, Gamaliel, 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 I don't know, it sounds like something from the Lord of the Rings. But he's a Pharisee and he rises up and he, he sends, sends the apostles out and talks to the, to the religious muckety-mucks. And he says, okay, just, just leave them alone. Don't kill them, leave them alone. Because if, it, if, if it's not of God, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, then we don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. Ah, he's hedging bets. He's an Ananias and Sapphiring it. We're not going to give everything. We're just going to hold some of it back. That way, if this is of God, we can say, we knew all along. Thanks be to the Lord. Yay. But if it isn't of that, then we've hedged our bets and everything is great. Yet God uses this to fan the flames of their witness because they bring them back in. They don't kill them, but they do beat them. The very same people who sentenced Jesus to a beating is now beating these apostles. That would be very fearful. Beating, like, it means to break skin. So they're lashing them. Not the cat and eye tails, but definitely they're getting lashings for this. 
And Luke only just mentions it. He says, and they got beaten and they went back to their friends and they rejoiced. They actually were happy that they were suffering because this is for the Lord and we're going to continue keeping on, keeping on. Why do they press on? It's because they have a brand new perspective. They are willing to lay their lives down because they realize their perspective is that this world here is momentary. These sufferings here are momentary. These things that are happening, they're here to teach us, to help us, to guide us, to, to, to continue to mold us, to be more and more like Christ. And we're going to press on and continue on because where I'm going, where I'm going is going to be far greater than here. So I'm just going to keep on keeping and try to get everyone else to come along with me because I have seen it. And I know that there awaits a place for me beyond this world where it's free of sin, free of suffering, free of all the things, and we will be with the true Messiah. Do you have that fervency of spirit now? Do you view your world knowing that here is temporary and longing for what's to come? If you get a chance this week, look at these sections in Scripture that Paul writes in Philippians and in Romans. Dorothy, you put that up there. If you go to Philippians and Romans this week, I challenge give me your homework. The Apostle Paul is the greatest example of someone who has a perspective change. He was, he was one that was probably with the religious mucks who beat these apostles. He was most likely there because he was a student of that Pharisee who said, send them out and leave them alone. And he gets this great perspective change where he now follows Jesus and he's in this Gentile mission. Read these passages in Philippians 1 and 3 and Romans 8. They're all about Paul talking about, I don't live in the flesh anymore. I live by the Spirit. And if I live by the Spirit, I then walk by the Spirit. And I press on towards the goal, goal leaving what's behind me, counting all of that as rubbish and going forward on to where Christ is calling me to go. And the only reason why he can write those things is because of the Holy Spirit perspective change. It says to him, this is nothing here. This is just the lobby. Awful things happen in hotel lobbies. You want to get to the room, right? You ever sat in the hotel lobby and people watch? You'll get it and you'll understand. <laughs> here I stand, I can do no other. This is the great end to this section after being beaten and flogged, after being told not to talk, they say, we're going to keep on keeping on. We're going to keep on with this forward march in lieu of political powers, in lieu of our present sufferings, in lieu of what any persecution that may come. In fact, all the apostles get martyred, except for John. John kind of gets martyred-ish-esque. He has a weird death. But the rest of them, all martyred, some crucified, some crucified upside down. They all meet their end for doing this. And you and I will meet our end as well. Who knows how that will happen? But don't you want to live a life that was bold and courageous, that while your feet were treading on this side of heaven, boy, you marched and you brought people along with you so that others may be at that table with you in that great day when we'll be with the Lord on that side of heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your amazing blessings. I thank you for perspective changes when we when we are so caught up in our, in our daily lives. And there are folks in this room and in the first service, friends that we have, family members currently that are going through dark, 
dark, suffering times. And it may be hard for them to lift their eyes to the hills to see where the help comes from. But Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, not by anything that I have said or that anyone else says, but by your Holy Spirit gripping their heart, they would have a perspective that knows that while these sufferings are happening, they are just momentary of what awaits them. And so we press on towards the goal. We march on forward in faith, relying on you for strength to grow in this world into the image of Christ to be in the next. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.